Howdy folks and welcome to the Six Ranch Podcast. On today's episode, I have Kyle Bratcher of Six Foot Flies and we're continuing our series on the critters that trout eat and today we are focusing on lakes. So we're going to talk coronamids, leeches, sow bugs, scuds, damsels, dragons, things like that. If you want to catch a big fish, this is the episode to listen to. Without further ado, Kyle Bratcher. Kyle Bratcher, Six Foot Flies. Welcome back, sir. How you doing? I'm well. Good. Just had an excellent dinner. Got a nice glass of scotch. Got some chocolate chip cookies. And we're going to talk about the bugs that trout eat in still water. Not just bugs. We're going to talk about some other stuff, too. But mostly the, the still water varieties of food that turn into flies, that turn into us catching fish. Where do you want to start? Oh, boy, there's so many, James. Um, let's start with coronamids. I think coronamids are something that make up a huge percentage of a fish's diet. Huge. And it doesn't matter if you're in uh, still water or um, uh, a stream of some kind, moving water. So the fish are going to eat those things no matter where you are. So let's start there and then go into still water. All right. Solely still water stuff. So coronamids, that's C-H-I-R-O-N. Use that degree. Uh, I don't know. Let me see. Okay, so coronamids, that's C-H-I-R-O-N-O-M-I-D-S. And If I spelled it right on my notes. There are 10,000 species, at least, of coronamids, and some of them are so similar to their sibling species that you need cryogenic data to be able to determine which species it is. So people have gotten very specific about calling one coronamid a species versus a subspecies versus just an iteration of of another one of these bugs. So the great thing about coronamids is they're essentially available to trout year-round. When it's cold during the winter, as long as they're not iced over, you've pretty much got coronamids going on. The other thing about them is they reproduce multiple times a year, so you don't get just that one hatch in May like you might get with a caddisfly or something. You actually get multiple generations within a single year. And so those those bugs are available to fish year-round. And if you go down and fish a lot of the rivers around here in December, you'll still see midges hatching off the water. And midge isn't necessarily a classification of an insect. That just refers to any really small fly, right? Sure, yeah. So coronamids, they're... They're living in the mud or in the substrate for a lot of their life and not available to okay. trout. Yep. And then they ascend through the water column to the surface, break out of their shuck, fly around, mate, lay eggs, die. Yep. Similar to the other bugs we've been talking about. Yep. So there'll be a larva for about four weeks. Um, and that's the majority of their life cycle. And then they'll actually take a couple days to pupate. Um, kind of like a caterpillar, the caddis that we had talked about before. And then they'll rise to the surface, hatch out as an adult, and then live for maybe a couple days. And then which of those phases is the most important to trout? Probably the pupa. Yeah. Um, and so like we talked, they're pretty much hatching year-round. So they're they're used to seeing pupa come up through the water column all year long. And almost every single day you're going to have 
uh, coronamids coming up through the water in the pupa phase. And the sheer numbers of this is astounding, right? And they're very small, but a lot of times if you cut open a fish that's been targeting coronamid pupa, he has a big black mass inside of his stomach of these things. So they're consuming thousands and thousands of them on a daily basis. Yeah, and if you... If you've never cut open a fish and looked, it looks like uh, almost like potting soil in the gut of the fish. And and most of the time, that's a bun- there might be some mayflies mixed in there, but typically it's just a bunch of uh, coronamid pupa. Okay. So let's go into coronamid flies. What does coronamid fly look like? Well, they're the, mo- the simplest fly. Um, they're a great fly for people to start with because they're super effective um, and they're easy to tie. So... You know, the kind of the standard pupa fly is going to be a zebra midge. Maybe that represents a larva a little bit too. But it's basically just a thread fly with a rib. Uh, you might have a flashback on it and a bead. And you just make it, the, the hook is greatly already kind of shaped like that, that bug. So it's a really easy tie, super effective pretty much anywhere. You can tie a ton of them real fast and you coat them all in epoxy or UV resin and they're indestructible. And I've actually caught fish on coronamid flies, if you will, that were just a curved red hook with one hurl of peacock tied right around the head. And some of these coronamid pupa are actually red in color, so that one works out a little bit. And then they have some gill filaments that would be represented by that by that little piece mm-hmm. of peacock hurl. Yeah, and I've and I've tied. They can get difficult to tie uh, when you get down to like a size twenty eight, size thirties. And I've tied those. And the thing is, is nobody likes tying those. Uh, it's yeah. just a pain, and it, it's just so hard to have those motor skills to do stuff that small. And if somebody tells you they like tying them, they're either lying or they need to be in an insane asylum, right? So, and you don't really need to, need to go down that small. No, and they don't. So one thing I will do with them is. I like to lay a little bit of flash in the back of them, like they're, the shuck is splitting open. Uh, I'll, I'll get rid of that if they're pressured fish and they're used to seeing flashy things. And maybe the rib will be a, a hot color. Uh, and then if they're a pressured fish, I'll go down to something dull like a brown wire or use a thin piece of Maxima chameleon or something like that for the rib. So, I found it interesting that one of the ways to tell the difference between um, a male and a female coronamid was their antenna. So the males actually have, like, fuzzy antenna. Mm-hmm. It looks like a feather. It's interesting. What time of year would you see yourself needing to pack coronamid flies in your box if you're going to be fishing still water? I, I always have coronamids in my box. And if I'm fishing still water, that's my preference most of the time, actually. Um, they're, just, they're just always there. A lot of those coronamid uh, pupa flies kind of look a little bit like a mayfly as well. So you get a little bit of crossover there and... I kind of believe in the the more general your fly looks, the more the more the fish gets to decide what it looks like. So, um, and hopefully they choose favorably. Um, but I I typically fish them all year, and I like to fish them without an indicator or anything. And I just cast it out there as far as I can, let it sink down a little bit, and then just really super slow strips, just basically enough strip to keep tension on the line so I can feel when a fish grabs it. And it doesn't really require much of a hook set. They're pretty much there if they grab it. So It's also a good time to fish underneath an indicator if you're out in a lake. And uh, one thing that I will say about fishing an indicator in a lake is a lot of, a lot of people will kind of throw shade at you for doing that. 
it's still a very effective technique. You're still fly fishing. If you have the opportunity to use a type of indicator that will put a right angle in your line so that your line is coming into the indicator in one direction and coming out 90 degrees in another direction, then you'll actually be sure that your fly is sitting at the depth that you want. Because when we're talking about still water, how deep you are in the water column is everything to a trout. And a trout is only going to look forward and up for things to feed on. He's not going to go down to feed on things. So if you're below them, um, you're giving yourself a huge disadvantage. So knowing the exact depth is really important. And if your fly is coming, if your leader is coming straight out the um, opposite end of the indicator that it went into, you know, you, you really don't have specific knowledge about how deep you're actually fishing. So that right angle approach has been really helpful for me when I'm fishing coronamids in still water. And I was fishing Kinney Lake uh, last summer, uh, early summer, and fish were just going wild on, uh, I didn't know what it was at the time, but figured it out and it was coronamids. And I didn't want to cast something big out there and make a big splash. So I actually just tied on a light coronamid under a, a humpy, but instead mm. of tying it to the bend of the hook or to the eye of the hook, I tied it to the main line going to the humpy. Yep. And so it creates that 90 degree that you're talking about. And then I just fished that humpy as my indicator and, um, it would just slip under the surface real quietly and then, and set the hook and fish on. So nice. Yeah. That's cool. So one of the great things about fishing still water is that if you want to catch a truly big trout on a fly, that's where it's going to happen, right? It's going to happen in a lake. Because those fish don't have to earn their living like a fish in a river does. They're more like a cow. They're just swimming around grazing on pupa. Yeah, they're living in the pasture. So there's there's typically a lot more food in still water, especially if there's a larger um, zone of that lake that light can penetrate. So if there's some shallows and things like that, that those fish can get in and hunt around in. And when I'm talking about bigger fish, I mean... Like in the rivers around here, if you catch a, a 20 inch trout, you've really done something. And that's quite a fish. It, it is, and it's something you should be proud of. But there's lakes in the area where these rainbow trout are getting over 30 pounds. It's like, come on. Which one of those do you want to catch? The 20 inch fish or the 20 pound fish or the 30 pound fish? You know, there's a 36 pound rainbow caught a couple of years ago. Like, oh my goodness. That sounds awesome. That's not going to happen in a river. It's simply not going to happen. So if you want to experience something like that on a fly rod, you've got to learn about this stuff. So coronamids, I think, are definitely a huge nutritional source for trout in still water. And what else do we have? Uh, crane flies. That's kind of similar thing. And they're actually what we'd consider a true fly. So they have their larval stage looks a lot like a maggot and they'll they'll live in a variety of areas and you actually will find them in some slow moving rivers and they're they're around pretty much anywhere where there's water but you know and what what we're talking about is the big a lot of people call them um like mosquito hawks they're this big long-legged fly with big wings big lanky things do they actually eat mosquitoes no those they the adults actually don't hardly feed at all um and are really not even capable of killing anything they might feed a little bit on nectar they say or hmm. stuff like that but uh they're 
they're absolutely not killing mosquitoes. That's a bummer because I grew up calling them skeeter eaters. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, you're you're on the same team as me. Uh-huh. Like, you hate mosquitoes." Yeah, no, yeah. they don't. Well, and so the the one thing is though that the larva will um, eat mosquito larva. Interesting. So, but not the adults. Well, once they're adults, then uh, they're useless to us except for throwing dry flies. Do you ever throw dry flies for? Crane flies? I, I actually do not. <laughs> yeah. I've been on rivers a few times that I wish I had a crane fly, but it's happened to me so few times that I just have never tied them up. And they're they're kind of an awkward fly, trying to tie those long, lanky legs, because it's a real slender profile. Mm-hmm. And so trying to fly, tie something that'll float um, real well and fish easy, it's, it's just... It's just something that I haven't done. I know people that do it, but... So are they important to trout at all? Oh, I think I think they are. I don't think it's something that um, they're spending a lot of their time feeding on. It's another short-lived hatch. They're going to be around for a couple weeks, and then they're going to kind of be gone. So I think the nymph is much more important. Uh, and the nymphs are pretty easy to tie, and they're pretty easy to emulate because it's just it basically looks like a big grub hmm. um, with a dark head. And so there's some pretty cool patterns out there. And I tie one with uh, I actually use squirmy wormy material to wrap the body, and so it's it's soft too. And so I think the you know that's going to have that mouthfeel for those fish to sure. hold on to it a little longer. So, but I think those are, I mean, it just looks like a big plump snack floating through the water. So interesting. So if you if you're going to talk about crane flies, you've basically got to talk about damsels next, right? Sure. Uh, so damsel flies, um, much prettier bug. Damsel flies are going to have really bright colors. Most of them are there's reds and there's greens and there's blue. And a lot of people think about blue. Blue is mm-hmm. pretty common for those guys. Now, Damselflies are pretty easy to confuse with a dragonfly for some people because they got real similar body body shapes. But a dragonfly's wings won't fold up above its body. Dragonfly's wings are going to stick straight out no matter what, and it'll have four wings. Where the damselfly will fold its wings up right above its body and in line with it, more uh, tent style, but flat together, like a sailboat kind of. Yeah, and uh, I've seen fish really chase damsels hard. Like, they're chasing damsel nymphs, they're chasing damsel dries. There's a bunch of, like, historic and classical paintings about trout crashing out of the water, chasing damsels. There's some really cool videos on YouTube now uh, with fish that are coming out of the water eating flying insects. They're not, the bug isn't even sitting on the water. They're tracking it underneath the surface of the water and exploding out of the surface to eat them. It's really cool. So So, what is it about damsels that are causing this type of behavior well i think part of it's they're bright and visible and they're a big bug Mm. and so it's something that you can see i mean we fish we fish bright colors for fish all the time yeah and so it's just something that's going to be attractive to them and those those damselflies have to complete their life cycle on the water and so i think it's just that risk of being that colorful and that big of a bug that you're going to draw some attention so june july yeah, summer. You'll see them all the way into the fall or early fall when it before it gets real cold. So going from damsels to dragons. Dragonflies. Uh, typically a bigger bug. Like I said, the wings are going to be splayed out. Nymphal form is a real ornery looking little little guy. They are. They're scary looking. Yeah, they are. And they're and they eat everything and they're um, down there raising hell on everybody. So hmm. they're hunting out mayflies and stoneflies and caddisflies and everything else so they're kind of the little predator of the bug world i mean everybody's doing it a little bit but they're doing it pretty much all the time and they like a little bit warmer temperatures right sure sure. 
And you, if you go to a place that's still water, that's got a fine sediment bottom and maybe has a bunch of organic matter on the bottom, if you just reach down and grab a big handful of it and pull it up, you're going to see all the kinds of things moving around in there. And that big bug is going to be that, that big ornery looking thing that looks like it should be the, they're burly. They look yeah. like a graboid or something like that. Yeah. It's going to be this big thing that looks like, yes, it, somebody should be using it in a movie to model their monster off of. Exactly. And they kind of are a monster, you know, they're just battling around down there on the bottom looking to eat one of their neighbors. And that's going to be a little easier fly to tie for me because I can, if it's a dragonfly for a, a top water fly, because um, I can use more foam because the bodies are typically a little bulkier than a damselfly. Have you um, ever caught a fish on a dragonfly? I, I haven't. I haven't either. And I've really tried. But again, I've seen some video on youtube of fish just going crazy over them and so i have i've caught them on dragonfly nymphs mm-hmm. um and that's that's a pretty easy bug to tie to you just kind of bulk up your stonefly patterns a little more maybe and then they look pretty good so yeah i think maybe bass might be a, a bigger player for for a dragonfly yeah. dry than than a trout treat it like a popper or something like that <laughs> i don't know but I've I've really tried and and they are sexy to look at and that's why you know there's a pile of women who have dragonfly tattoos and not caddis <laughs> tattoos. But you know a bug that big isn't going to be that much fun to cast either. Um, sure, they're gonna be they're gonna be bulky and they're gonna spin and so you're gonna have to use a heavy leader and stuff like that and so there's just not a lot of guys out there fishing those. So what about sow bugs? So sow bugs are interesting because they've been around for a long time and they go way back in the uh, fossil record, but they're just another arthropod. Uh, These are, if you get finer, it's an isopod, but you know, those little bugs that you'd find um, under rocks and stuff as a kid and they'd roll up and we call them pill bugs or roly polies or whatever. Same thing. Uh, That's a sow bug. And so they live on land and they live uh, and they're aquatic and there's some uh, they're mostly aquatic, and so there's a, there's a few terrestrial versions. So, but interesting little critter because they're actually a crustacean. They're not a they're not a bug at all. Should we be eating these things? Are they like a little shrimp that we don't know I about? Don't, I don't see why it'd be a problem. Have a little sow bug salad. <laughs> Just add a little crunch. A little sow bug cocktail. Yeah, peeling them would be terrible. <laughs> You'd be at it forever. Yeah. But yeah, they're running seven pairs of legs, so they got fourteen legs. Fourteen legs? Yeah. So that's excessive. Uh-huh. Who needs fourteen legs? Apparently, sow bug. The sow bug does. Yeah. They are cute little guys, though. They're like a little underwater armadillo. Yeah, and they're easy to tie flies for. It's basically a scud. You just maybe don't put antennas on the end, and you just play the legs out because they're a little flatter than a, a scud. Yeah. And they're a little broader. And so you just tie legs that poke out a little more to the sides. And uh, and honestly, a scud would probably work just fine. So, And trout love them. Yeah. My, um, growing up, my uh, grandpa had a little pond that he started stocking and it was full of them. And so he'd put these fish in his fingerlings in the spring. And by late summer, they were like 16 inches. And that's all they ate. They just gorged themselves on those things. And it's a lot of, it'll it'll actually turn their turn the fish's flesh a little bit more of a pink color. So if you have trout that are targeting sow bugs, you're going to have a little bit better table fare there as well. Yeah, but that was some of the most fun I had growing up was catching those fish and um, copying those sow bugs. So that's cool. So you mentioned scuds. What's the difference between a scud and a sow bug? Well, they're 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 both arthropods. Um, so the name on a scud is Amphipoda. So they're just a little different. Um, 
There's a lot of species of scuds out there. About 1,900 of them are in fresh water. They have eight appendages instead of seven. And they're a little bit different. And they use some of them for swimming and legs. And then where sow bugs only crawl. And then they use the very furthest front set of legs as like an extra mouthpiece almost to, to eat. So, But those are going to be common in some streams even. Um, down in the Klamath Basin, I pulled out a handful of stuff from a river one time. And it was moving and it was just full of scuds. And the guys that I was learning to fish that stretch of river from didn't fish scuds down there. And... I switched over to scuds and just started hammering fish. And so it was, it was pretty, it was a good learning experience to pick those up. But, um, but they're, they're kind of like a little freshwater shrimp. They're not technically a shrimp, but similar. What about leeches? You know, um, I've only, have you ever been on a river or a lake and seen so many leeches that you thought that they were available to a trout all the time? No, I haven't, but I have had them stick onto me and start yeah. sucking my blood while I was fishing in shorts or whatever. Yeah, but Both you, in rivers and lakes. But you didn't come out with like hundreds of them on your legs, did no, you? No, definitely yeah. not. Okay, and so I'm not really sure what's going on with leeches as far as fish food. I'm sure they use them once in a while. You know, we fish a lot of leech patterns no matter where you are. We do. And I, I don't know. I think that's more just leech patterns can look like a lot of things, but they can also, um, they just stand out. Because they're they're often contrasting with whatever else is around, and they move, and so they could be a tadpole. Going back to damselflies, I think one of the best damselfly nymphs you could probably fish is just a slightly modified olive woolly bugger, right? You know, and so, uh, but we might call that an olive leech. And so, I think trout are using them once in a while, but I don't know that I've ever seen them in in abundance that would just make fish go crazy for them. It seems like they're they're sort of like the earthworm. And and they are an annelid, right? They mm-hmm. they've got a segmented body. They they're another worm. Earthworms aren't a food source that's readily available to fish, but fish really like to eat them. The worm is is to fishing what the hamburger is to the American, right? Fish love to eat them. So I think that the leeches sort of fill that role that it's a fish has encountered them. They have experienced them. It's it's a big meal for them. They don't have to swim super hard to get them. They, a leech can't swim very fast. A lot of times they're no, attached to vegetation. Swimmers. It but, might, maybe it's just a little bit of revenge. I mean, could be. Yeah, <laughs> they, that's going to be the primary host for those leeches most of the time as a fish. So they show up as uh, as live bait in a lot of places too. Sure. Like when you go into a bait shop, you buy leeches to take out and fish as live bait. Sure. So I don't know. A leech can be a lot of different colors, but I will say that. Um, the only way that a leech can be purple is if he's dead and leeches have an, an interesting, um, interesting history in medicine. You know, they were used for a long time to try and draw poisons or, or toxins or demons out of people, but they're still used in microsurgeries and the anti-clotting agent that a leech produces, um, is still used in people who have blood clotting issues. So th- this little critter has had big implications in, in the history of mankind, um, and they, they definitely are something worth thinking about. If you read, uh, read books about stillwater fishing, you're eventually going to come across a guy named Denny Rickards, and he came from the Klamath Basin, and he you know, says that he'll fish two or three flies anywhere he goes in stillwater for trout, and one of those is the Denny Rickards leech. 
And I think it looks like a lot of different stuff, you know. I don't know that a fish is necessarily looking at that and thinking, ooh, leech. But they eat it, and uh, it looks like a leech to us. Yeah, I did a little bit of work on his property when I lived down there. Oh, you did? Yep. And But I most of the leech patterns you'll see me tie or post online are more kind of geared after that particular leech instead of a woolly bugger or something right. like that. Because... Yeah, I just got to the point where I didn't like wrap and hackle on woolly buggers for some reason. And so I just went to more of that style. And actually, one of the very first flies I ever fished was a leech real similar to that. It was called a mini leech. Mm. And um, loved the thing and went away from it for a while. And then just recently kind of came back to it and have enjoyed fishing it a lot. So, but I just don't think there's a whole lot of difference between a woolly bugger and something like that. It's a black thing in the water. And so, no, there's, there's really not. I will say that those those mohair style leeches that don't have all the hackle, you know, they're more of a, a simple fly, but they're they're a type of fiber that doesn't move around quite as much as marabou. It keeps its body a little bit better. That's a fly that I always want to have in my box. If I'm traveling to a new place or if it definitely if I'm in a place where I've caught fish with like that before. But that's that's a confidence pattern for me where I can go to a lake and find the shallow end of it and cast that thing out there and do it a two inch strip and pause. And I'm fairly confident that I'm going to be able to pick up a fish doing that. Well, and the best thing about a leech pattern, especially for new anglers, if you're guiding or taking somebody out new is you can fish it any way you want. There's no wrong way to fish a leech pattern. You can right. fish it under an indicator. You can twitch it under an indicator. You can just go straight strip. You can fish it naked. You can do all kinds of stuff with it, and it just doesn't matter. And so there's no dead set presentation that so if they mess up a little bit it doesn't really matter and so it's a great pattern for new anglers to fish and they are in all types of water yeah whether it's a freestone river tailwater whether it's a backcountry slough a farm pond clear mountain lake there's probably leeches there and we fish for every type of salmonid with them i mean steelhead you go to high lake with them bass even i mean i've caught I don't know how many fish on a freaking black leech pattern. So oh, yeah. different species. So everything eats, eats them. So, yeah, it's just, it's, it's an attractive shape, um, for a fly. So even if that fish isn't thinking leech, even if a fish isn't capable of thinking leech, a leech pattern tends to function well, like the, you know, egg sucking leech or egg sucking woolly bugger leech isn't even capable of that kind of thing. But that's one of the most popular patterns in Alaska. Killed a lot of fish. So it's something worth understanding and worth having in your box. So for leech patterns for you, are you just going to go woolly bugger? I've been fishing, um, and I have it on my website and Instagram. I call it a fusion leech. Mm-hmm. So I tie it with Senyo's fusion dubbing, and that's basically all it is. And um, been tying it on jig hooks, straight hooks. Uh, but I've I caught a few steelhead on it this spring. Been fishing it in the still water lately and doing really well with it. And I think it's a fly I like to tie, and so I like to fish it. So and I've been tying it in all kinds of different colors. So, what's your favorite color? Black. Yeah, yeah. I you know a lot of times I'm trying to kind of get in the fish's face if I'm fishing a leech, something that stands out, it's attractive. It, probably not the best on water that's been fished a lot but i i haven't been fishing that type of water lately i've been fishing pretty sparsely fish stuff and so it, it seems to work out if 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 i have trouble with it then i'll switch over to something more subtle and try to get takes that way but let's talk stillwater tactics 
I think you want to fish still water from a boat if possible as a baseline because then you can move around a lot easier. You know, you're not restricted to one piece of shoreline. So we're fishing from a boat. Is an anchor important? <laughs> Extremely. Extremely. How about two anchors? There, well, I'd say two different kinds of anchors. Okay. Because, um, and it depends on what your setup is. Uh, like I'm fishing out of a drift boat a lot. I don't have a trolling motor. And so I'm finding out that a drift anchor is real nice to have because I can just motor up. I have a motor on my boat for still water, but um, just a two stroke. And so I can motor up wind and then drift down. But unless the wind is just the right speed, then I need something to control my speed a little better. And so if you're in deep water, putting an anchor down, if we're up on Willow Lake, you're in a hundred feet of water and you're not going to drop anchor and pull up all night long. And so being able to drift and or slow your drift down a little bit is kind of key. So, so an anchor is important. Yeah. Deep water. So you're talking about like a sea anchor. It's, it's like a, a, they, a big funnel that you're throwing out. Yeah. The water. If you're in Europe, they call them a drog here. They call them a drift anchor. A drog. Uh, yeah. Just nice. depends on where you are. Sounds like something. That I, I believe it's drogue. Sounds like something that uh, you drink at the end of the night. Right. Yeah. So, um, you know, and then there's times that you just got a school of fish that's piled up somewhere and you got to stop yourself and just sit on those fish and go after them. If you're in shallow water, I like to have two anchors so you can anchor off the bow and the stern. Otherwise, your boat is going to keel into the wind and you're limited in the directions that you can cast. And if the wind is going to move you around or if the wind isn't going the same direction as the current, then you're just going to have constant problems. But if you can anchor both ends of your boat, you can have a static position that you can cast 360 degrees sure. and, and work all the way around yourself, which is really what you want to do. Yeah, and something I've run into with the boat drifting around is you're targeting a fish over here and then all of a sudden you're casting. I like to stand up on my bow and so all of a sudden I'm casting right over the stern, over the motor to try to make this cast. And there's all kinds of stuff back there to tangle a fly line on. So, yeah. And if fly line can tangle, fly line will tangle. The, the worst thing that you can tangle a fly line on is, you know, on your straps on like backpacks and stuff, how they always sew the ends over there. And there's that little flap. A fly line will find that every time. Yeah. The other one that I'm really good at tangling fly line on, I'd go so far as to say professional is the buckle on my Chacos. Yep. Oh, man, I can throw a half hitch over that buckle without even looking. Some would think without even trying. <laughs> and then I'll hook up a big fish, and it'll go zeek. That's as far as she can mm -hmm. go, and then something breaks. Yeah, and so, like, when I was in Belize, I fished barefoot the whole time because then yep. you can tell if you're standing on your fly line and there's nothing for anything to hang up on those boats. So that's the move, for mm -hmm. sure, if you can get away with if it. It's not too freaking cold out. What about fly lines for still water? So I just uh, kind of got myself set up for still water a little better recently. I went out and I bought myself a cassette reel. What's a cassette reel? So it's something that's not as popular as I think they probably should be. Um, so normally you have your your reel and you have your spool that's detachable. And so you go buy a $200 reel and then they sell you a $110 spool. So if you want to have five fly lines for your setup, you're you're looking getting pretty deep into money. And Especially that's not, when fly lines themselves aren't cheap. Yeah, and that's not even counting fly lines. And so what this is, is it's got this little plastic spool that goes on it. They cost like 10 bucks. And you can load them up with whatever your fly line you want, set them in a bag somewhere, 
And then when you want to change out, you just reel up, slap that back on there like you're changing your spool out. And so I just bought a cassette reel with uh, five spools, and then I bought five new fly lines. And so I got a, I got a real aggressive sinking line. Um, it's called a depth charge from Orvis. It's a type six. And then I got a type three, an intermediate, and then I got a, a five foot sink tip. Um, cause I just didn't feel like I needed a long sink tip if I had that intermediate line and then I got a floating line. And so I've got this whole setup that I can change in and out and it was way cheaper than if I'd have had to buy spools for that fly reel. So what, what, what is a type six? What's a type sure, five? Sure. So a type six is going to, is pretty much the most aggressive sinking line you're going to find. It's about six inches per second. It sinks. And then a type three is about three inches per second. And then an intermediate's what they'd call a type one. So it's one or two inches per second. And then the tip is, I think it's a type three, five foot sink tip. And really the idea is so, you know, our home lake, Wallowa Lake is super deep. And so there's times you need to be 30 feet down. And so that's when you throw that type six on. But then if they're on the surface, you need a floating line and then they could be anywhere in between. And so, and that's going to be true almost no matter what lake you go to, you know, if it's, I mean, if it's a 10 foot deep lake, but the fish, you need to get down five feet, you still got to get down. And so floating fly line is not necessarily going to work. And it can change your presentation if you're stripping flies uh, and you're fishing with a floating line, that, that fly has to come up um, no matter how much weight you have on it and how far sunk you get it it's got to come up to go up to that floating line. And so you can get a straighter presentation and get that fly to swim at depth with a sinking line. And the amount of time that you spend with your fly functioning as intended in the water has a lot to do with how many fish you catch during the day. So if you're waiting 60 seconds for your type six to make it to 30 feet deep, that's a lot of time on every cast that is just spent waiting for that fly to get to depth. But it is also the type of thing that you can understand and you can actually look on your watch. Like, all right, 30 seconds, 60 seconds from now, I'm going to start my retrieve. So you, you can be very precise with it and you can trust this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Be consistent with it. Um, and then your, your intermediates, when you look at them on a shelf, those are typically clear, right? Some of them are, um, this one's a little more opaque. Um, it's kind of a green color. Some of them are, um, might might even be black, but some of those clear camo lines and stuff they're coming out with now are pretty cool and uh, great for clear water, especially if you've got spooky fish. I would say that if you have one lake line that you get an intermediate that's clear. Yep. And yeah, you might have to wait longer if you want to try to fish for fish that are, you know, five or 10 feet deep, but these lines are expensive. You know, you might be 60, $80 into buying a fly line. So if you only have one, you can't get one that sinks slower, right? So if you only get a type six and you want to fish the top six inches of the water, like you got to retrieve crazy fast to do that. And that's unnatural. Mm -hmm. Fish in still water are not used to chasing their food down for the most part. You know, they, they tend to feed a little bit more lazily than, than trout in a river where the food is going past them and they have to make an aggressive move to get that food. Mm-hmm. And I've I've never had the full setup like this. And so when I've fished still water, I've always had to come up with crazy ways to adjust, you know, and like putting uh, maybe split right at the connection of my fly line and my leader just to make that the tip of that fly line go into the water a little bit and do things like that. And it's awful to cast um, because you're doing all these weird things, trying to make your flies fish the way you want them to because you don't have the lines that you need. And so, you know, if you can get 
even if, even if you have a floating and like an intermediate and then like a, a type three, you're going to be in a lot better shape than just fishing a floating line that you have or that sink tip that you have. Yeah. And the tough thing with a floating line in still water is there's always wind or current. Um, and d- despite the fact that it's a lake, there's probably still current in there. So your line is going to belly out almost immediately as soon as it lands on the water. And that's one of the advantages of a sinking line is it tends to stay a little bit straighter and then you can maintain contact with your fly and with the fish. Well, and just that extra density too cuts through the wind a little better sometimes. So you can actually, if it is windy, which if you're fishing still water, you're probably going to encounter some wind, that density can help cut through that wind a little bit. Now, when it comes to finding fish in still water, I like to do something that is often looked down upon by fly fishermen but i like to troll and i will troll until i hit a fish and then i know okay where once was a fish might there be another and that's a point where i'm going to try and anchor up and uh, and start casting and working that area and looking for those larger fish but still water can be intimidating to look at a great big lake that may be thousands and thousands of acres i was like where in the world do i start I would start at a place where it's transitioning between deep water and shallow water, um, where there's some structure, some vegetation, because that's going to be the key to insect life. But you may also need deep water so a fish can move in and out of the temperature that he's comfortable in because the shallow water warms up more. How do you go about looking for fish in still water? Uh, I'm doing the same thing. I'm looking for topography and structure, typically. Um, You know, I'm also looking at inlets and other places where fish can sit and food will come to them. So if I can find somewhere where there's current, I've noticed uh, if you can find a spring, sometimes you can just feel the water is totally different in a spot. Uh, Maybe you were swimming in it. Um, There's sometimes you can just see water coming in from the bank. You know, if you can find those springs and, you know, the rest of the lake's hot and that's cool, that's where those fish are going to be. Um, there's actually some places in Oregon even that they have to shut down fisheries because um, there's cold water refuge and it's right. just way too easy to target those fish. And so, but, you know, I I saw a presentation about the topography of a lake one time and they showed the sonogram that they were using to map the bottom of this lake. And on it, they were like, there's this ridge right here, and you could see fish sitting right on top of it. They'd hit it with that, and he pointed them out and said, there's fish right here. But, you know, I mean, even bass fishing a couple weekends ago, you know, we were trying to find drop-offs and big structure and stuff, and that's where we'd find the fish. So So let's kind of review what we've covered so far. Different types of bugs, chironomids being a really reliable one. Fish are going to be eating chironomids year-round that's their potato yeah. right yeah and i would say if you're struggling on a river just switch to a corona if you're really having a hard time catching fish that day yeah you know they're eating them just go to that and fish that yeah on a, on a river or a lake yeah yeah and uh and then you can specialize with some of these other th- things like sow bugs and scuds and damsels and dragons leeches that's a really popular one um talked a little bit about where to find fish and how to find them Let's talk about retrieves because that's a huge, huge factor is how to retrieve that fly because that's a, really, that's what presentation comes down to is, mm-hmm. is speed and depth. Sure. And so I started off talking about coronamids. So I just kind of came across this way of fishing and figured out that people have been doing it for a while, but it's called fishing naked. And so you're fishing a nymph 
typically on a bare line. So no indicator, no nothing. And you just cast it out there. And this is where having those different density lines helps too. And you just let it slowly sink. And then you just, I'm just doing like a roll retrieve with my hand, but it's super slow. And I'm just trying to feel that tension, not really feel the tension, but be able to know I don't have any slack in that line. And you're not really moving the bug. You're just bringing it in real slow. And like I said, a fish latches onto it and they're typically cruising by. And so you feel them immediately and they're, and since they're moving and you've already got all the tension out of that line, they're, they're pretty much hooked up at that point. Um, and so that's one of my favorite ways to fish under the surface. And I do it with leeches too, basically just sitting there waiting for fish. So just a, a real slow hand twist retrieve. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I think of, of sort of strip and pause retrieves in a couple different categories, like a, a two inch strip and a pause, four inch strip and pause, and then a 12 inch strip and pause. And I think that the longer the strip is, the longer you have to pause before you start again. And the pause tends to be when the strike occurs. Um, usually as soon as you stop, that's when the fish eats. Yeah. My strips normally aren't real consistent either. I, I vary that length. So, you know, one strip might be a two inch strip and the next one's a six inch. And so mm-hmm. sometimes I vary it because, you know, maybe think about like a crawfish, which we didn't cover here, but you know, think about how they swim. It's real jerky, but if something's coming after it, it's going to swim a little faster and, you know, and so they're going to swim a little different depending on what's going on, if there's a current. And so, so I try to vary that retrieve a little bit. Um, and then, like you said, sometimes that pause, sometimes fish will follow and you see it all the time. A fish will be following something that it's thinking about eating and then it stops and it starts to sink and that fish just comes up and subtly grabs it. And so sometimes I just let that, let it sit for longer than you normally think you should and, and you'll get a grab. Yeah, I know um, Dr. Dave Whitlock described the retrieve on his frog pattern as uh, let it sit in the water until it got rusty. And so that was, that was his retrieve. Um, just let that frog sit and sit and sit. And then eventually a fish would eat it. Boy, I, I don't have the patience for that type of that's, fly fishing. That's why I fly fish is because I don't have the patience for that type of fishing. I can't sit and watch something for that long. Yeah. Um, if I'm going to be fishing like that, it's cat fishing and I'm making dinner while that rod sits there. Yeah. <laughs> so I like the activity of fly fishing. So, so let's go ahead and, c- and cover crawfish real quick since we're there. Sure. So, you know, a lot of the crawfish people think of as bass patterns, but mm-hmm. trout eat them. And our lake here gets stocked every year and people go up there and just hammer these fish with power bait. But there comes a time in the year that the power bait all of a sudden doesn't start work, isn't working very well. And it's after the stocking's kind of been shut off for a little bit. And what what's happened is those fish have switched over to more natural food. Mm-hmm. And I caught a fish up there one time. Um, it had been six months since the last stocking uh, early spring and fish have time to grow and be in the lake for a little bit and hold over. And I took it home and it had crawdads in it. And wow. so, you know, and crawdads are pretty much everywhere. If there's water, there's pretty much crawdads there. I've seen them in headwater streams way away from the main body of water that you'd never imagine them being there. And so, uh, it's a good pattern to fish if you can get a good crawfish pattern. And, you know, remember, everything's got to start small. And we always see these crawfish patterns that are the size of your thumb or bigger. But, you know, if you take your index finger and think about the first knuckle, there's crawfish out there that got to be that big. And so fishing something that might resemble a crawfish in that size can be helpful. And with all the jig hooks that are out there now, you can 
they're great for crawfish because of the, the up and down bob on them. Um, and it kind of resembles that herky jerky motion of crawfish now. So yeah, very underrated, very underrated bait for trout. When I moved back here from North Carolina, I still had a bunch of, um, rubber shrimp patterns with me and I didn't know what to do with them. You know, I didn't see myself fishing for sea trout anytime soon. So I went ahead and threw them on a steelhead trip and I caught steelhead and trout on them. And there's no way they're eating them for shrimp. Um, but they did look quite a bit like a crawfish and that's kind of the way I was fishing mm-hmm. them too. So, and the point you bring up about them starting out small, they start out as an egg and then molt and molt and molt and grow bigger, just like all the rest of these insects we've talked about. So a small crawfish is a big food source. You know, that's a big meal for, for a trout and it's easy to get. And they, they're in all water systems. One thing that we should point out is that we don't want people to be transporting live crawfish anywhere. No. Because these, um, there are a lot of invasive species out there and they can eat trout you know they can catch a six inch fish and they can really mess up the ecology of a of a water body yeah. they uh they'll they're eating mayflies and they're competing with all these other species that haven't evolved with them and so yeah they're they can they can shift an ecosystem it certainly can be an issue they're fun to eat that's why you fish a fly yeah it looks yeah. like a crawdad yeah definitely so what's your go-to crawfish pattern that you tie <sighs> Well, I tie one. So I mentioned that Swiss stone uh, in the Stonefly podcast, yeah. and uh, I use that same stuff for a back on a on a crawfish. I I can't say that I've named it yet, yeah. But it's it's fairly similar to a lot of the patterns out there, but it's a little quicker tie. It's just uh, some rabbit strip claws, some antennas that are rubber legs, um, a chenille, a cactus chenille body, and then I lay a lay a piece of Swiss straw over the top of it and leave a little flap for a tail and trim it up nice and looks pretty good. Fish as well. Well, would you encourage somebody to try still water fly fishing? Yeah, I mean, if there's fish there, you should be fishing there. Yeah. So, still water is probably the more common opportunity for trout throughout the country yeah and we're you know living out west we're used to fishing rivers we've got a lot of rivers to fish in every state but you go to back back east there's way more still water you start getting into impoundments that have been there for hundreds of years uh you go to the uk and almost all the fishing opportunity in the uk is what they call lock style fishing and so there's a lot of still water out there to be fished across the world and, and big fish grow in still water yep so I'll just break this down one more time. There's more opportunity for you to fly fish or trout in still water. The fish get bigger. They have access to food more often. And there's insects like coronamids that are hatching year round. So it really is a tremendous opportunity for anglers, most of whom are not taking advantage of it. And I say that it's better to fish from a boat, but you do not need a boat to do this. Um, you can certainly do it from the bank and be very successful. And it's a it's a great way to fish as a new angler too, because you can make that long cast and learn to make those long casts. Where a lot of times on the rivers you're chunking big heavy flies to get down and indicators, and um, the casting's just clunky. But it's only like thirty feet, so it, you, you're not improving your skills as much doing those 15, 20, and 30-foot casts as you are trying to lay out a fly line on a lake nice and flat and then strip that back. And it, it that's what I did to get ready for Belize was I went up and I practiced on the lake and just stripped flies for 
uh, trout and I used a strip set. It's like you're supposed to do in salt water nice. and did all that just to get ready. And so it really prepares you for other types of fishing around the world. If you decide you're going to travel and fly fish. So a strip set is where you're pulling on the fly line yeah. to set the hook rather than lifting the rod. Yeah, you're basically pointing the, the rod straight at the fish and then giving it a little tug to bury that hook instead of lifting the rod. Um, it's it's not as good for light tippets because you're more likely to break them. And uh, one of the things that um, so they they do that down down in the salt water because the fish mouth their mouths are hard. Um, you lift the flo- you lift the rod, you're typically going to lose your fish. But one of the drills that I did is I had somebody stand flat flat footed in a room and hold on to the fly line, and then you lift your rod like your trout setting and see what happens to them. And they just stand there and look at you because the rod absorbs all that shock. And so you're protecting those light tippets by doing that. But with stronger tippets, if you point the rod straight at the person and you pull on it like a strip set, they're going to take a step forward. Interesting. Um, so you're getting a, it's actually a lot more solid of a hook set than, than lifting the line. And so if I'm fishing for bass or anything where I'm stripping, I typically strip set um, because it gets me ready for the salt. But the other thing it does is if you miss the fish, then you're still fishing and that fish may come back and grab it because you didn't lift that fly out of the water or pull it 50 feet away from the fish. So Exactly. So if, if he misses that fly um, and he's trying to engage with it, you only stripped it 18 inches. Now he's got another shot. So definitely work on that. And that's great advice to practice it before you go on a saltwater trip because these trout guys are terrible about trout setting on tarpon and bonefish and things like that. And that might maybe the the fish of their life that they just missed that opportunity on because they weren't able to shake that bad habit or that that habit that's not appropriate for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Well, Kyle, thank you very much. Thanks for um, having me. If uh, if folks are interested in getting um, an assortment of Stillwater flies, you can pretty much give them a box that that they can take to almost any body water for trout and be successful. Absolutely, it, It's not as nearly as specific as, as a selection of flies for a river. Sure. And if you know what you want, let me know. Um, otherwise I can tell me, tell me where you're going is probably the most important thing. And I can figure out what you need in that box. Okay. So if you want to catch a big trout in still water, or you want to access um, some still water for trout fishing, Talk to sickfootflies.com or at sickfootflies on Instagram, and I will link that in this podcast description. Thank you, sir, for your time. Thank you, sir. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will help you go out on still water and be successful. Find that big fish that you've been dreaming about your whole life. I'd also like to thank Kyle for sharing his knowledge and experience. If you're interested in getting some flies from him, it's sickfootflies.com or at sickfootflies on Instagram. This podcast was edited by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. If you enjoyed the show, I encourage you to subscribe and share it with a friend. Catch you next time.